Thank you, Brother Jim. And as he said, we want to kind of address two uh, subjects this evening. Uh, one is um, why I'm an Anabaptist, and the second one is why I'm a conservative Mennonite. So I'm going to kind of try to uh, cover both of those. Uh, let's just do a little bit of review what we did this morning. Uh, why I'm a theist, whether you look at the universe through a telescope or a microscope, it uh, seems more logical if there's a designer. The existence of God is revealed in the night sky and in the way of the ant. The development of something as complex as a human eye just doesn't seem to be an accident. It seems like it uh, uh, took a designer. It doesn't seem likely that it's uh, or logical that it's the process of, a, of the result of a long process of natural selection. Well, I'm a Christian. I'm convinced that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened as a physical historical event. Um, and here's some of the things we covered uh, this morning about that. Uh, some of the, the evidences for the, the resurrection. And for me, the resurrection of Christ, uh, if Jesus really rose from the dead, which I'm convinced he did, then that changes everything. And that just sort of that just sort of takes away a lot of questions and a lot of things that um, uh, just resolves a lot of things for me. Um, I want to talk now, let me get my other, um, um, well, yeah, let me get my other uh, PowerPoint here. Um, so I'm going to switch to this other one and why I'm an Anabaptist, and we'll go through this one. Then I'll come back to that other one. I could be, I mean, I, I can, uh, I'm a theist, I believe in the existence of God, but I could be a theist, I could believe in the existence of God and not be a Christian. I could be a Christian and not be an Anabaptist, so why have I chosen to be an Anabaptist? And I want to say something here, uh, we're, we're, we're crossing a bit of a line here with this subject because um, like if, if you don't believe in the existence of God, uh, you're in trouble. Like that's, that's not going to work out. Uh, if you're not a Christian, uh, Jesus is the only way of salvation and he's the only way to the Father. And so those are, those are, are pretty exclusive. However, uh, we're crossing a bit of a line now in that being an Anabaptist isn't the only way to be a Christian. Uh, and I, I don't want you to misunderstand me to say that if you're not an Anabaptist, you're not a Christian, or that we're the only way, being an Anabaptist is the only way to be saved. I, I don't, I'm not, not suggesting that at all. It's a good way, it's the way that I chose and I think it's, I, I, and here I'm going to give you the reasons why I chose that. Also, being a conservative Mennonite isn't the only way to be an Anabaptist. It's not, it's, I'm, I'm not saying that everybody who's not conservative Mennonite is not saved. I'm not saying that everybody who's not conservative Mennonite is, is, is lost. I'm not saying we're the only ones. Um, we're not. Um, but I, it's, a good, it's a good way, and, and, and there are some really positive things about Anabaptism. There are really some positive things about the conservative Mennonite church. That's where I've chosen to, to plug into the church. That's where I've chosen to live my life, and that's where I intend to finish living my life. And I'll give you the reasons why. Um, but there are other people who are very passionate about Christ and who are very committed to Christ who've chosen another place, another segment of the church to plug in. And I may not agree with them on everything, but you know what? I'm not the judge. Uh, they're not my servants. They're servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit can be faithful to demonstrate to them the truth. And, and I, I, just, I just, you know, I think about when the Lord Jesus was talking to Peter and he tells Peter, you know, well, someday they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And they're going to, you know, and Peter says, well, what about, he points to John and says, what about him? And Jesus kind of tells him, well, that's, don't worry about him. Uh, I'm talking about you. 
And you know what? I have enough of problems in my own life. I don't have to worry about what all the Baptists have wrong or, or what all the other denominations have wrong. I, 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 need, a, I need to focus on following Christ and, and being all that I can be for the Lord Jesus Christ. So I just wanted to say that, that uh, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying, but I am going to explain to you why I think being an Anabaptist is a really good thing and why I've chosen to do that. And, why, and the same thing about being a conservative Mennonite. You know, there are three choices that we make that are very foundational in how our lives turn out and the kind of life that we live. One is our decision to follow Christ and our decision to be, to, to be, a, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ. The second one is uh, our life partner and who we choose to uh, team up with as, as a life partner. That has a tremendous impact on our lives and the, and the course of our lives. Uh, the third one is where we plug into the church and, and, and where we choose to serve Christ uh, in, in the church. Those three things, because our relationship with Christ, our marriage partner, and our peer relationships are foundational in forming us and shaping us into the person that, that, um, that we will, will be. You know, sometimes I think that, that we look at Anabaptism, uh, we look at, at being Mennonites and we think, well, you know, we're, we're just kind of evangelicals with a, a few extra rules and uh, we ought to just kind of get over some of that stuff and just merge into the evangelical church. And, and you know, we're just, uh, the sooner we get over some of these things, the better we'll be. And, and, you know, that's not true. Uh, our, our theology is, is actually quite distinct. Our view of the church is quite distinct from that of, of the evangelical church. And here are four foundational commitments of the early Anabaptists. Uh, the first one is uh, Bible honoring, a trustworthy and clear word that sanctifies us. Secondly, discipleship, how Christianity is lived out. Thirdly, a, a disciplined believer's church. And fourthly, peace and nonviolence as a way of life in human relationships. And we're gonna work our way through these. Um, Bible honoring, a trustworthy and clear word that sanctifies us. The Bible is the inspired word of God. It's our guide for life. And, you know, we really take it like, one of the things that one of the, the things that we really try and do is we look at what does Scripture say, and how do we do that? How, how do we live that out? And so I know we don't do it perfectly, and I know we don't we don't always get it right. And there are some things that we probably read over pretty quickly and just kind of you know we don't really want to think about applying that. But we really make an honest effort to try and do it. When we look at what Scripture says, we says, well it. Jesus meant what he said. He, he, it's, it's not like we look at the Sermon on the Mount and some people say, well, the Sermon on the Mount, that's, that's kind of an idealistic uh, vision of the future and that someday it'll be like that. But, and we look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, no, that's really how we're supposed to live. That, that really is for us uh, today. I had a student uh, one time in one of my classes Oh, we got to talking about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, well, I don't think Jesus ever really intended us to try and live that way. And I said, well, no, you're wrong. He did. Like, that's, that's how, so we look at Scripture and we say, that's, that's, those are our instructions. That's how we, that's how we ought to live. And, and we try to put it into practice. And so we look at uh, how do we apply Scripture? How, how do we live it out? Um, and, and we... We look for ways to remind ourselves of the principles of Scripture. And I was in, um, um, I was in another state one time uh, speaking at a church, and uh, at that church uh, wasn't their practice uh, from a century ago or more to, um, to wear the plain suit. So the bishop there asked me, uh, uh, Here's a question that I ask, I ask pastors from the East. Um, and he said, my question is, why do you wear a plain suit? I said, well, I wear a plain suit because I, 
I believe that the Bible teaches, it teaches humility and it teaches having a, a modest attitude, a, living a simple life. And I wear a plain suit to remind me that that's the kind of person that I want to be. And so it's, a, it's helpful to me because it reminds me that I want to be a person of humility. I want to be a person who, uh, who lives a simple life, who is, is modest. Uh, and so it's, it's a reminder to me. And he said, well, that's the second best answer I ever got. He was saying, you know, a lot of pastors from back in the East, they just say, well, that's what our church does. Uh, but he said, at least you have an answer that's not that. And so what's the best answer you ever got? He said, well, the best answer I ever got was uh, somebody who told me, well, you know, the priests in the Old Testament, they were supposed to wear a fringe on their garment and they were distinctive from the other people because of the fringe they had on their garment. And so he said he thought that was the best answer he got. Well, you know, we take something like modesty and humility and we say, so how are we going to remind ourselves of that? How are we going to live it out? And how are we going to practice that? And we... We agree on applications, ways that we're gonna we're gonna apply these things, and and then we we do it, and uh, and there's value in that, and we take we take scripture seriously. Secondly, discipleship uh, that it is it is the narrow gate doesn't open onto the broad way, like conversion. A commitment to Christ is a life-changing event. It's a transformative event. We don't just kind of intellectually make a commitment to Christ, a faith statement, and then just kind of go on living the way we always did. That's not, that's not the Christian life. It's that we actually become a disciple of Christ. We actually become a follower of Christ. It affects the way we live. It, it affects uh, the things that we do. And it affects our behaviors. Uh, it, it, it changes our lives. And, and we, we think about what does Christ want me to do and, and what will please him. You know, some people misunderstand us uh, because uh, they think that somewhere there's a couple of old guys in a back room somewhere that say, well, you know, what, can, what, what, should we, what should we make people do? And what are people allowed to do and what aren't they allowed to do? And then they give you a list of rules and, and then you've got to follow all that stuff. And, um, and so they'll, they'll, uh, they'll reveal that thinking to you when they ask you questions like, does your church allow you to? And, and, uh, and you can fill in the blank. But you see, what they don't understand is that our commitment is not, it's not a couple of people making some rules and saying, okay, these are the things that you have to do, and these are the things you're not allowed to do, but we, we look at our objective is to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a, a disciple of Jesus Christ, and what are the things that will please Jesus? What are the things that will help us to be better followers of Christ? And so then we want to do those things. And we look at things and we say, if this is going to help me to be a better follower of Christ, a better disciple, then I want to do that. If it's going to hinder me from being a disciple of Christ, if it's going to hinder me from being a true follower of Christ, then we don't want to do that. And as a group, we dialogue about this stuff and we talk about it. And, 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 and then we kind of agree, yeah, this is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to live it out. These are the things that are going to be helpful to us. These are the things that are not going to be helpful. And, and then we together... As a group, we walk together and we, we live it out in, in, in everyday, everyday life. Now, there are, there are challenges that every, every religious group faces. Not, it's not just, these, these things aren't Anabaptist problems. They aren't Baptist problems, they aren't Methodist problems, they aren't even necessarily Christian problems. They're with any system, any religious system. I'm gonna suggest three things to you that are challenges and that, that we need to be uh, aware of and be thinking about. The first one is nominalism. And you know, you can have, you look back at the early Anabaptists and the fervor and the excitement that they had and just but you know, over 500 years, uh, that can kind of 
settle into, well, you know, we kind of know what to do and, and um, you know, what to say and where to go and where not to go and how to, to look pretty good. And, and we can fall into where we're just living a system, but there's no life there. There's no, uh, there's nothing really happening in our relationship with Christ, it's just kind of going through the motions. And we do the things that we think a good Christian ought to do or a good Mennonite ought to do. And we just kind of go through the, the mode. We learn how it works. And, and, but, you know, we're just riding along, basically. We're not really passionate about, about our faith. I was talking to, well, let me just leave that. I, I don't have time for that. But there was, but there's, it would be like in my marriage, if I would know that, well, we got married on March the 3rd, so our anniversary's coming up in March, and I think, well, you know, it's going to be our 51st wedding anniversary on March the 3rd, so, uh, well, and I think, I want to be a good husband, so what would a good husband do on his anniversary? Well, he'd probably remember it, so I put a message in my phone, a note in my phone, so that it'll notify me that morning that it's our anniversary, and so I get up that morning, and my phone reminds me, and I say to my wife, well, happy anniversary. It's our anniversary, and I remember how many years it is, because I put that in my phone, too, and then, you know, and then I, so I got that right, and, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm doing pretty good here, and I think, what else would a good husband do? Well, he probably buy his wife some flowers, so I go to the store, I buy my wife some flowers, I come home, here, here's some flowers, and I think, well, what else would a good husband do? Well, he'd probably take his wife out for dinner, so I take her out for dinner, and at the end of the day, I can say, you know, I've been a good husband, like, she can't complain because I remembered it. I remembered how many years I, I bought her flowers. I took her out for dinner. I did all the things that a good husband would do. So I am a good husband. But, you know, I can do that all kind of emotionless, right? Just kind of without any feeling. It's a whole different thing if I wake up in the morning of our anniversary and I didn't have to put a notice in my phone and I'm like, Sunshine, you are amazing. Like, we've been married for 51 years. I am so excited about being married to you. And I tell her some things I love about her and how I love being married to her. And then I bring her some flowers. And I tell her, here's some flowers. Like, I'd get, like to give you a lot more, but this is the best I can do. And, and then I take her out for dinner. And I sit across the table from her. And I look her in the eyes. And I answer her complete sentences. And we have a conversation. Like, it's a whole different thing, right? I, I do the same things, but... She's gonna, there's going to be a big difference, right? Because she's going to be able to tell my heart is really in this. I'm really excited about it. And you know what? I'm, we have, I'm, I'm afraid that sometimes we have too many of us that are just kind of going through. We're being good Christians. We're being good Mennonites. We're going through. We, we know how the system works. But our hearts have grown cold. And we're not really excited about Jesus. And we just need to really, we need to be passionate about the Lord. Just, we need to battle nominalism is one of our challenges. The second challenge we face is individualism. And you know, much of, uh, so much of Christianity today, and especially in our society, individualism is a highly valued uh, thing. And so, you know, in the United States, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are our inalienable rights and so we really have taken that to the, the point of absurdity but individualism is a big thing and so this whole thing of well you don't tell me what to do and how to live my life it's all about me and Jesus and and we're just you know it's me and Jesus and it's all about me and and people go church shopping well like what does this church have to offer me and what does that church have to offer me and well you think about you know they have this children's program they have this and that and you know maybe that church would be good for us and we, and we almost take consumerism to church and it's like what can what is it what's in it for me and, and what am I going to get out of it or even in our relationship with Christ it's kind of like well you know what's he going to do for me and and um, you know how does Christianity benefit me and how does being a Christian benefit me and so I know people you probably know people who were Christians and and then their spouse died, they had a child that died, their spouse divorced them or something, and they're like, okay, I'm done. Like, if God isn't going to take any better care of me than that, then what's the point? Like, why should I be a Christian if bad things are going to happen to me? I'm, I'm done. Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to follow Christ if he, if he allows those kinds of things to happen in my life. And it becomes all about what am I getting out of it and, and what's in it for me? It would be kind of like in my marriage... If 
Edith would say to me, uh, Merle, like, would you wash dishes? And I would say, well, let's see. I really like spaghetti, and I haven't seen much spaghetti on the table lately, so uh, if I start seeing spaghetti on the table, I'll wash dishes. But if I don't get spaghetti, no, I'd really rather not wash dishes. So, uh, no, I'm, I'm not going to. And if everything she would ask me to do, if I would say, well, what are you going to do for me? Um, our marriage would become a transactional thing, but it wouldn't really be, it wouldn't be what a marriage is designed to be, right? It would, it would just be, you do this for me, and then I'll do something for you, and, and it, would, it would be a business arrangement. It wouldn't be a marriage. It wouldn't be based on, on but no, I, I, I mean, if, I, I, I love to wash dishes. I'm not going to come to your house and wash dishes, but I love to wash dishes at my house because I've learned a long time ago that when Edith is smiling, it means that I'm happy. So, right, it just works that way. And so I want to do things that please her. I like to see her smile. I like to do things that make her happy. And so I'm not thinking about what I'm going to get out of it. I'm not thinking about what's going to happen for me. I'm thinking about how can I please her? How can, I, how can, how can she be happy? And I'm gonna, I, want to, I want to make her happy. And, and, and I know that that's going to have results for me too, but I'm not focused on that. And in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's like, how can, I, how can I please him? And how can I do the things that, that bring a smile to his face? And, and how can I serve him? And how can, I, how can I do the things that please him? The third challenge we have today, I think, is a challenge of minimalism. Where there's people who say, well, let's just reduce this thing down to what are salvation issues uh, what do you really have to do to get to heaven? Um, like, are there people that go to heaven that uh, never wore a veiling? Well, yeah, there are. Well, why do we do it then? What's the, what, why bother? Like, if it's, if it's not a salvation issue, if it's not something that, that uh, I mean, if I can go to heaven and not do it, why, why do it? Um, and the whole thing of just saying, let's just reduce it down. The bare minimum, like, what, tell me what I have to do to ha go to heaven. And I'm just going to do that. Like, let's get, rid of every, let's get rid of all the rest of the rules. Let's just boil it down to the very basics, the very essentials, just the things that if I don't, if I do that, if I don't do that, I'm not going to go to heaven. Or if I do do that, I'm not going to go to heaven. Let's just get it down to the minimum amount of, of rules. Well, let's go back to my marriage. As an illustration, if I would do that in my marriage, if Edith would say to me, uh, Merle, would you wash dishes? And I would say, well, um, is this a divorce issue? Like, I want to be married to you, but if I can be married to you and not wash dishes, I'd really prefer that. And if everything she would ask me to do, I would say, is this a divorce issue? Because I don't want to be divorced, but I don't want to do any extra. I want to do just the minimum amount that I need to do to stay married to you. So I want to, do, I want to be just on the edge of divorce. <laughs> so I, I, I want to do just, just the minimum to stay married. Like what kind of a marriage would that be? Uh, and you see, when, when we say, well, when we, make the, when we make Christianity simply about going to heaven, we're missing the very point of Christianity in the first place. Because Christianity is not about how do I get to heaven. Christianity is about a relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ and heaven is a side benefit of having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my focus is on my, should be on my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and then my question is not going to be how can I do the minimum? My question is going to be because I love Jesus and I want to please him, I'm going to do everything that I can do to please Jesus and it's not going to be a chore. It's not going to be a burden because there are some things that may not be salvation issues but they are obedience issues or they are issues of doing things that please 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I have a passionate love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's not a chore for me to do those things. It's not a burden for me to do those things. I was listening to, uh, a number of years ago, I was listening to a message uh, on the radio by, by Chuck Swindoll. And he was uh, preaching through 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he, was, um, he, he preached a message from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that would have been pretty much the way I would preach it. He, he uh, talked about the veiling and the, the purpose of it and, and, and that it's not talking about the hair, it's talking about a separate covering and he went through it pretty much the way I would went, go through it and, and the way his messages were on the radio at that time, they were divided into two parts and I listened to the first part and I told Edith I need to listen tomorrow because I need to know how he's gonna exegete that passage that way and preach that message that way and then somehow get to the end and say, but you don't need to do this. But I know he's not gonna get to the end and say, all right, so women should wear uh, a veiling. So I, but I don't see how he can preach it that way and then not wind up at that point. Well, what he did the second day was he said, so now I know that there are people who read this passage and they say, well, uh, a woman should wear a hat to church because of this passage. And, and uh, he was saying, but you know, I've found that uh, when I go to churches and there are women who they think that they should wear a hat because of this passage, uh, really, uh, they're, they're generally the women that they have the worst attitudes toward their husbands and uh, toward authority and toward, and so, you know, they have the hat, but they don't have the heart attitude that is supposed to be portrayed by the hat. So, and so he said, basically, like, what does Jesus want? Does he want the hat or does he want the heart attitude? Well, he wound up saying he wants the heart attitude, and so the hat is really um, peripheral. It doesn't matter. So it's a heart attitude is what God's looking for. That's what matters. The hat is unimportant. What Chuck Swindoll is missing in that message is it's not an either or proposition. What if you have both the heart attitude and you have the, and you have the veiling? Now you have something really powerful, right? Because you have both. You have the heart attitude and you have the application that symbolizes the heart attitude. That's where the power is. And that's where I come back to saying, when we look at scripture, we look at how are we gonna do this and then we say, we are going to be disciples of Christ and we are going to be followers of Christ and we are going to do those things. And we're not going to just do the minimum. We're going to do what we need to do. We're going to do all that we can do to please the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the disciplined believers church, the belief that the church is uh, a visible reality in the world, the whole thing of, of, of two kingdom theology you know, the Roman Catholic view was, is that the church emerges from the church. So you, you baptize everybody in Italy as Catholics, and then the church kind of emerges out of, out of that. The people who are really true Christians, they kind of come out of that. And, uh, and so the church emerges from, from the church. The reformers took the view that the church contains the church. So you have the church, you baptize everybody in Switzerland as, as reformed. And then in that church, there are the true Christians and those who are really part of the church. For us as Anabaptists, we say, no, the church is the church. And the church is made up of committed followers of Christ. And it's voluntary. You're not... You're not baptized as an infant and kind of forced into the church. You, it's a choice that you make to be part of the church. And as when you become a follower of Christ, you commit your life to Christ. And then you commit yourself to the church and, and the brotherhood of the church. And, and you, you voluntarily become part of, of the church. And then we believe that the church is, it's, it's a whole it's a whole different thing. It's a whole, it's a, the kingdom of God is this worldwide uh, kingdom that's not a, a physical kingdom. It's not a political kingdom, but it is, it is under the king of kings and lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and yes, we live in nations. We live in countries. 
And we have, right, we have rights and responsibilities. Paul had his, 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 he was a Roman citizen and he used his Roman citizenship to avoid getting flogged. And, and so there were times that he took advantage of his Roman citizenship, but his allegiance wasn't to the Roman Empire. His allegiance was to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ and Paul were not out to reform the political system of the Roman Empire. They weren't out trying to Christianize the Roman Empire. Actually, having the, 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 just calling something a Christian nation is an oxymoron. It's like having jumbo shrimp. It, there just isn't such a thing. Uh, it can't be possible. It's not possible. A, a nation can't be Christian. It just, like a person can be a Christian, but a nation can't be Christian. And so you can't have a Christian nation. You can have a nation that has Christians in it, and you Christian people can have an influence on a society, and we are the salt of the earth, but, but there is no such thing as a Christian nation. And... You know, we get all tied in knots, and I think that ever since the first presidential election I remember is in 1960, and Mennonites, many Mennonites were convinced that the worst thing that could ever happen would be for us to have a Roman Catholic president. Like, we were, all was going to be lost. Like, if there was ever a time to vote, it was in 1960, because if John Kennedy was elected as president. We were all going to be under the Pope, and it was just going to be, you know, it was going to be the end of our religious freedom, and it was we were going to just turn back the whole pages of, of whatever religious freedom in the United States all was going to be lost. And I think almost every election since 1960, I've heard somebody say, this is the most significant election in the country has ever had, and if, you know, if this doesn't happen, you know, it's, it's all is lost and everything's going to be over. And, but you know what? The church operates totally outside of that political, uh, that political sphere. And I don't know if you're in a panic about the 2024 election, but I just want to tell you something. It, the church is going to be okay, no matter how it turns out. And actually, in reality, the church prospers under some pretty adverse political systems. And so it's just, it's another world. And quite frankly, well, my friend Simon, the atheist in Sioux Lookout, he was talking to me one time and, and he knew that I have American citizenship. And so when Trump was elected, he was always telling me, you're president. And I said, oh, please. And then, uh, uh, and, but he was talking to me and he was saying, you know, like, who are you going to vote for? And I said, well, I'm not going to vote. And, and then I tried, why, why? And then, and then I tried to explain to him two kingdom theology, which didn't make any sense to him at all. And, and, uh, and I told him, well, how can I vote for the commander in chief of the army? Like, I don't, I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to bomb anybody and I don't want anybody to get bombed and I don't want to. Uh, so, but if I'm electing the commander in chief, then, you know, I, I, I have some responsibility there and I, I just don't, that's just a world that I don't want to be part of. And, and he was like, yeah, but you care about it. I said, yeah, I care about it and I pray about it, but uh, it's, it's a whole, I'm so busy trying to do the work of God and build the kingdom of God. I don't have time to worry about who I should vote for. I, I don't, and he said, well, do you vote for the mayor and town council? He said, no, I don't vote for them either. He said, well, they're not gonna bomb anybody. You could vote for them. So I said, no, that's all right. It's just, it's a whole different system, but I, we can get drawn into the whole thing of nationalism. And, and you know, as Anabaptists, we've never lived anywhere this long without being persecuted. And we can kind of get drawn into, well, this is our country and we need to, you know, we need to, we have a, we need a, we have a right to live here and have our way of life. And, and no, we don't. Uh, we're pilgrims on the earth and we don't, we don't have a right to anything. We're committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and we can live out our faith regardless of what happens politically and regardless of the political system that, uh, that we live under. And so, being good citizens of the nations in which we live is, is good and it's positive, but, but that's not our identity. We are, we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost and we have citizenship in a country. 
but the church is uh, a disciplined group of believers, people who are committed followers of Christ. And then peace and nonviolence as a way of life in human relationships. Now, some people will point to the Old Testament and say, well, look at all the violence in the Old Testament. Like God told them to go just slaughter countries. So what was that about? Um, But I think you have to look at the Old Testament and you look at, okay, at, at the flood, God regretted that he had made mankind. And he almost wrapped the whole thing up and said, it's done. I, I should have never done this. It was a mistake. And, but God had a choice. He could have either eliminated all of humanity and said that was a mistake or he could have started working on a plan of redemption. And God chose to start working on a plan of redemption. And then he chose Abram. And through Abram and the, the nation of Israel, God began to develop his plan of redemption. Uh, and, and then the Lord Jesus came. And you see, God promised Abram, I will make of you a great nation. And through you, I will bless all the families or all the nations of the earth. And then God started working toward building that great nation. But he took an ethnic group. He took the Jewish people and he built that great nation. And 900 years later, the great nation became a reality in David and Solomon. But over the next uh, few hundred years, God tore down the great nation. And you would think, why why did God allow the nation of Israel to be destroyed? Why didn't Jesus come in the time of Solomon? Wouldn't have that been the perfect time for Jesus to come? You have the great nation, you have all the wealth, you have all the countries around, surrounding countries, honoring Solomon and thinking about Israel as a great nation. Why didn't Jesus come then and just be who he was then? Because if he would have done that, the kingdom of God would only be a Jewish thing. And God had a vision for all the nations of the earth. So he had to get rid of the nation of Israel as the great nation. And then Jesus came and suddenly the kingdom of God is among you and it's here. And, and, and that, the kingdom of God is, well, we talk about things being global. Or we talk about things being international. But the kingdom of God isn't an international association. It's it operates outside of the whole thing of, of, of nationalities. And it includes people from every nation and every ethnic group, and it, it crosses all of those boundaries. And, uh, and so God was working toward that. Uh, and Jesus came as the Prince of Peace. And when I look at Jesus' teachings on peace and how we should relate to our enemies I just don't see how I just don't see how you can say well thou shalt not kill but unless your government asks you to do it it just doesn't like in the Ten Commandments there's no asterisk after thou shalt not kill with a footnote that says unless the government tells you to I, I just it just doesn't And then when you have nations, you have Christian people from America killing Christian people from Germany or the other way around, I just, like, how does that even work? Um, And I just don't don't see how you can read the teachings of Jesus and then somehow condone participating in warfare or participating in, in, in violence. So how do we respond to war? Uh, how do we respond when something happens? And you know, after 9-11 in the United States, there was just a real desire for revenge. People were like, they just wanted to bomb somebody. They didn't really care who or where. They just, they wanted revenge. And we look at wars and, and, and how are we supposed to respond to war? How are we supposed to feel about war? Well, here's some suggestions. I think we should be grieved by the destruction of life on, on all sides. Um, we should forgive those who harm us if we're harmed 
by warfare. And that's easy to say here when we're not worried about bombs falling on our houses tonight. But even if that were to happen, we would, we would have to ask for the grace of God to forgive. We should pray for people. Uh, we should work in the world where we have influence to bring true shalom and evangelism and discipleship are the key tasks of the church. For me, I've chosen to be Anabaptist because I believe that God intends for us to follow what scripture says. He intends for us to be his disciples. <clears throat> he wants the church to be uh, a disciplined, voluntary group of believers, followers of his. And I really think he wants us to live in peace with, um, with our fellow man. Let's go back to this uh, outline. And I want to talk about why I'm a conservative Mennonite, because I could be an Anabaptist and not be a, a conservative uh, Mennonite. I could be a theist and not be a Christian. I could be a Christian and not be an Anabaptist. I could be an Anabaptist and not be a conservative uh, Mennonite. I believe that one of the one of the reasons why I've chosen to be a conservative Mennonite is because I, I, I value the fact that we evaluate our walk of life by scripture and not by the surrounding culture. If you're not willing to be different from society, I think it's very difficult, if not impossible, to, tr to, to truly be a follower of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like at some point, we have to say, society accepts this, but I don't. Society does this, they think it's okay, but I, that's not for me, because I'm a follower of Christ. And so to look at how are we gonna live our lives, and how are we, what are, what are we going to do, and how are we going to live life, to make those choices with our eye on scripture, and not on the surrounding culture has value. And that's one of the reasons why I have chosen to be part of the conservative Mennonite church, a commitment to discipleship uh, where we really, how we live matters and we invest in discipleship. Uh, we know how to do discipleship. And again, I know we don't do it perfectly, but, but we have, uh, we, get, we get discipled as we're growing up. Some of it is through modeling. Some of it is through actually uh, being discipled. And we put a priority on, on discipleship. Um, I was talking to the Pentecostal pastor in Sulukaut a number of years ago. Uh, and... Uh, he at that time there were three former Mennonite couples in in the Pentecostal church. The Pentecostal pastor told me, Merle, if somebody comes to you and their life is kind of a mess, what you tend to say to them is, "Well, you let me meet with you for two years, and you're going to be a different person. Like over the next two years, I'll just help you sort those things out, and we'll talk about stuff, and and uh, we'll get yeah, you'll be a different person." And uh, that can, that can, your life can change. Uh, just, you know, walk with me. Let me walk with you and you'll be, you'll be good. He said, when that same person comes to me and they talk about the mess in their life, he said, my thing is deliverance. And so I tell them, brother, you just let me pray for you. And in 30 minutes, you're going to be transformed by the power of God. And you're never going to be the same. Your life is going to be, is going to be good. But he said, you know what? Sometimes I've done all the deliverance I know how to do. And people's lives are still a mess. And I don't know what to do with them anymore. So he said, you know what I do with them? I connect those people with the, those former Mennonite couples that are in my church. And oh, they just take them under their wing and they disciple them. He said, you guys know how to do that. He said, we don't know how to do that. And it's a strength we have. And, and you know, the book of Proverbs is based on the fact that not every generation has to learn everything. They don't have to start at zero. Wisdom can be passed on from one generation to another. And, 
And we make an effort to do that, and I value that. I think it's important. And then a church that stands on biblical principles, that seriously looks at how do we live out the Christian life and how do we put it into practice, and where there's accountability, and, and we are... We care about each other, and we, we care about community. We, uh, well, probably brotherhood is a better word than community, but, but we have that brotherhood, and we care about each other. And uh, You know, I, I have told my fellow pastor in Sulaco when, we, when I was assistant pastor at the church there, I told him, you know, the problem we have with people coming into our church is that they don't understand our concept of the church. They don't understand that, that we're not just concerned about our, it's not just me and Christ, it's also me and, and the brotherhood. It's, it's the accountability to the group and that yes, I, you have a voice in my life, I have a voice in your life and we, we have some responsibility for each other. Um, and that's lived out in, in the application of biblical principles. And then a commitment to peace and nonviolence in, uh, in human relationships. Well, can the conservative Mennonite church face the pressures of, uh, of our time? And I think we have to think about the history of our, our movement. Um, when you think about most of our groups most conservative Anabaptist groups, most conservative Mennonite groups separated from the larger conferences from the 1950s to the 1990s. Keystone started in 1999. And uh, there were issues over which at various points along the way, uh, people decided, you know what, we can't, really, we can't really be part of that. We can't do that. And so uh, groups were started, Nationwide Fellowship and the Eastern Church and Mid-Atlantic and Keystone and BMA, there, there's that we have kind of of individual histories, but but there were reasons why uh, our groups were were started, um, and there were uh, they were started out of reaction to what was happening in in the larger uh, larger conferences, and uh, and vows were made. Uh, we're not going to be like them. And if you haven't, I know for some of you younger people, you haven't lived through that. Um, but there were, at each of those separations, divisions along the way, there were family members that were on both sides of those divisions. People that stayed with the conferences and people that that went with whatever group they went with. And, and you know, the people that stayed with the conference, many of them would look at the people that went with the conservative group and they would say, well, you're just, you're just kidding yourself. Like another generation, you're going to be where we are anyway. So you, it's, it's irresistible. It's change happens. So you might as well just get over it. And, and people were like, no, we're never going to do that. We are, we are not going to be like them. And, you know, um, Just not being like Mennonite Church USA is not a sustainable vision for a church. It, it may be okay for a decade, but at some point, like a lot of you younger people, you people that are under, well, it's what, 25 years now since, in March it'll be 25 years since Keystone started. Well, if you're under 25, you don't even remember that. And so you're not paranoid about not being like Mennonite Church USA and and so it I think we're I think we're kind of at a crossroads or I think we have to we have to have a viable long-term vision for why do we exist and it can't be that we're not going to be Mennonite Church USA it has to be something about this is who we are and this is why we exist and this is our place in the kingdom of God this is this is our vision for the future, and this is what we're this is what we're doing, and this is how we're this is how we're we're contributing to what God wants to happen in in our world. And I know sometimes you 
you know, your younger people might look at some of the rules and stuff and you say, well, why is it that way? And you make a suggestion that seems really pretty obvious to you and then you get this big reaction uh, from some of the older people and you're like, where did that come from? It came from some of these vows because people were like, it almost became like nothing can change. Like we, this is where we were when this separation happened and if there's any change, we're going to be on this slippery slope that's going to wind up, you know, where we don't want to go and so everything has to stay the same. But that's not a, I just don't think that's a sustainable vision for, for the future. And so I think, I think we're at a place where we can, uh, we can define a vision for who we are and, and where we want to go. And, and, and you know, I, I just think that uh, for you young people, you have, uh, you have the opportunity to help to shape a vision for the future. And one of the things I like being around young people is that I believe young people today in our churches have a passion and a desire to be part of bringing God's change to the world. And, and in your generation, you have resources and tools that no other generation has, has ever had. You have the opportunity to travel like no other generation has ever had. You can be almost anywhere in the world in 24 to 48 hours. Where I live, a hundred years ago, if my grandfather would have wanted to go from Ephrata, Pennsylvania to where I live, it would have taken him three months to get there. I can get on the plane at 7.30 in the morning and be in Philadelphia at four o'clock in the afternoon. Like, that's, that's amazing. You have travel opportunities that no generation has ever had. You have technology resources that no generation has ever had. You have Google Translate and you have, uh, you have, a, you have in your phone, in your pocket, in your hand, you have resources, technology. You think about people like Hudson Taylor, William Carey, who went halfway around the world from Britain. It took them months to get there by ship. And when they were there, the only way to communicate with their family was to send a letter back, and that took a few months to get back to Britain, and then it took a few months for a letter to come back. There were months when their families didn't know if they were dead or alive, and if they got into a spiritual crisis where they were serving, it took them months to let anyone know. You can go halfway around the world, any, almost anywhere in the world, in 24 to 48 hours, and when you get there, you can get on your phone, and you can get on WhatsApp or whatever you use, and you can kind of show your mom your room and where you're going to be sleeping, and then she relaxes, and everything's going to be okay. And if there's some kind of a crisis, you can get on some messaging app or something, and in, a, in, in less than 15 minutes, you can have hundreds of people praying about your situation. It's amazing, the resources we have. And you have financial resources. There is wealth in our communities that we've never had before. In the, next gener in the next 20 years, there is probably more wealth going to be transferred from one generation to another by inheritance than at any other time in our history. And the fact is that if your grandparents are in their 80s and your parents are in their 50s or 60s, your parents don't need your grandparents' money. And there is a lot of resources, financial resources, that can be used for the kingdom of God. And we have opportunities, you have opportunities, like no other generation has ever had to accomplish the task of the Great Commission. And as a church, we are uniquely suited to bring the gospel to some segments of the world's population. Because of our commitment to modesty, our commitment to godly living, our commitment to families and to marriage, we tear down the stereotypes that many people in many parts of the world, especially in Muslim countries, have of Christians. Because in Muslim countries, the idea is if you're a Christian, you worship statues, you have three gods, you drink alcohol, you're immoral, and you're immodest. And we just check off. I mean, there's just a lot of those boxes we don't check off. And so we have the ability, I believe, to communicate the gospel in some very, very difficult parts of the world. 
I think we also, our commitment to discipleship, there are denominations that have done a phenomenal job of evangelism, but they have not followed up evangelism with discipleship and with teaching. There are many first-generation men around the world who are trying, first-generation Christian men around the world who are trying to pastor a church, and they've never been spiritually parented. And we know how to do discipleship. And I believe one of the things that God would call us to as a church is to get out there and follow up some of the great evangelistic efforts that have been done with discipleship and with teaching and with helping people to really be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and to live it out. And you know, the other thing that I think is really important for us at this point in history, in our society, is when you think about how information is transmitted and that how that's changed over the centuries, you had uh, oral transmission of, of stories and of information, and then you had the printing press that came along, and things went into writing. And when I was a teenager, uh, we would ask each other, have you read this book? Have you read this article? Did you see that you should read this? Uh, today, that's not what happens. Today, the transmission of information has switched to the visual. And so people will say, have you watched this video? You should see this clip. Look at, listen, watch this on YouTube. And the transmission of information has gone to the visual. As distinct uh, Anabaptist people who, who apply applications of biblical principles and we are at first glance different from society, we, pr we provide a visual representation in a world that communicates visually about being a follower of Christ. A couple of years ago, we were traveling. We were going through Dryden. Edith was going to have a meeting with somebody in Dryden. I went to Tim Hortons while she was going to have her meeting to have a coffee. While she was having her meeting, I walked up to the counter to order my coffee. And before the lady took my order, she took a look at me and she said, well, now you look like an old Mennonite man. And I said, that's exactly what I am. And so we had a conversation. But you know, there's something about just being recognizable as a follower of Christ that's powerful in our world. Uh, Michael Sosfus is, uh, is teaching in a school in southern Thailand and he got his training to teach and he wanted to teach in a Muslim uh, school in southern Thailand. And so... And he said, Michael said that, you know, when you work with Muslims and people ask you, well, what's your religion? If you say, well, I'm Christian, then they think, okay, well, here's a guy that, you know, is, drinks alcohol and all well, the things that I said, and he's immoral and all that. And, and so he said, people started to say when, someone, when a Muslim would ask them, what's your religion? They would say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. And then it was, okay, well, that kind of started a conversation. But then he said, so many people were saying that, that... If you would say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, and they say, oh, you're Christian. And then it was, uh, they still had their same assumptions. So he said after the nickel mine school shooting, he started telling people, well, do you, uh, do you know about the Amish? And he said everybody in the world who has a television or had anything digital, uh, they, they, and if they didn't, they, well, if they didn't quite know who the Amish were, he said, remember that school shooting? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know about the Amish. And he said, well, I'm, I'm part of a group that my religion is kind of like, kind of like the Amish. Oh, okay, and, and uh, that was good. So anyway, he went to do his interview at this school in southern Thailand, and the headmaster, this guy is a member of the Thai parliament, and he's an influential person in, in the whole region, and he's the headmaster of this school. So Michael goes there for his interview to uh, apply for the job to teach at this school. So the headmaster in the conversation asks him, uh, so what's your religion? And he said, well, I'm part of a group that's um, kind of like the Amish. And this headmaster said, oh, the Amish. He said, 10 years ago, my wife and I went to Lancaster and we took an Amish tour. And he said, all day I was on that bus and I was looking at those Amish people and I saw their, um, I, I saw their modesty. I saw the way they were together as families. I saw the way they were living their lives. And he said, all that day I was asking myself, how can I get one of those people to come and teach in my school? And now you're here saying you're from a group kind of like that, and you're asking to teach. You can teach anything you want in my school. There were Amish people. Now, we can criticize the Amish for not being evangelistic, 
But there were Amish people who were just going about their lives, and they opened up the door for Michael Salsfus to teach school in a Muslim school in southern Thailand. There's something powerful about being recognized as a follower of Christ. And, and that's one of the reasons why I am pleased to be part of a conservative Mennonite church. I just think it has value in our world. I think it's, I think it's as important for us as a conservative Mennonite church to be in existence today as it was for the early Anabaptists to be who they were in their day. I don't think the significance or the importance of it has, has gone down at all. I just think, I think it's really important that we are who we are. Here's some suggestions that I have for the conservative Mennonite church looking toward the future. One is holiness that we really are passionate about Jesus and that we're really passionate about living out the Christian life and that how we live matters. Secondly, that we do evangelism, that we spread the good news of the gospel and that we're passionate about people hearing about Christ. We're passionate about spreading the message of the gospel. And then discipleship, that we follow up evangelism with discipleship and we provide teaching and then I think, fourthly, relationships and community. And I would suggest to you that many people who have left the conservative Anabaptist church didn't do so over, um, um, over rules or standards. They did so because of a lack of relationship, a lack of meaningful, deep community relationships. You know, I was talking, well, Gary Miller, I think, did a, a survey of people from non-Anabaptist background who had been part of a, Anabaptist, a conservative Anabaptist church for a period of time and then left. And he said, you know, if you ask conservative Anabaptist people why those people leave, they say, well, it's because they didn't agree with some of our rules. But he said, when I interviewed those people who had left, he said, the people who had become conservative Anabaptists and then left, he said, almost without fail, they left because they said, I just couldn't, I just couldn't break in, I just couldn't be part of the community. I just didn't have the, the depth of relationships. And the one, he said, the one man said, I was part of a conservative Anabaptist church for 10 years. And he said, there were people who would pray for me. They would ask me how they could pray for me and they would pray for me. But he said, there was never one person who came to me and asked me to pray for them. And he said, I just, I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't get in, I just couldn't get into it. I, I just couldn't build the relationships. And I think it's important. You know, one of our, uh, one of our weaknesses is our inability to resolve conflicts and to be able to demonstrate that as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we really genuinely love each other and, and we're too quick to just part ways. And I wonder sometimes if some of it comes from our, uh, our, our history and our heroes are the Michael Sattlers, George Blaurocks, the people who said, all right, you're heretics, I'm out of here, <laughs> I'm leaving. And I'm not saying the early Anabaptists shouldn't have left the Catholic Church or the Reformed Church. But what I'm saying is I think sometimes we're too quick to accuse people of heresy and false doctrine and just say, I'm out of here, I'm, I'm done. And I, I just, and I wonder if we had a real passion for the church and for evangelism and for spreading the gospel, uh, if we'd focus more on the world around us and how much they need Jesus, and maybe a little less introspection, whether, I don't know, I, I'm just suggesting that I think relationships and community are something we can work on. And, and I think it's, I, 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 again, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we, there should never be, there's never a time to say, I can't be part of that, I'm, I'm, I'm done. But, I just think working on relationships and being 
really building community is important. So I've chosen to be an Anabaptist because of our commitment to the Word of God, to discipleship, following Christ, a disciplined, voluntary church, peace and nonviolence, our commitment to that. And I've chosen to be part of a conservative Mennonite church because I think we really work on living those things out. And I just want to encourage you in, um, you know, it's sometimes we get, we get intimidated uh, because people kind of look at us and they go, well, you're kind of cute and, you know, you're, yeah, your way of life was nice in the 1800s and, you know, but you just, yeah, and the tourists come and they kind of look at us and stuff and, and we get kind of like a little bit sheepish. But no, we have a place in the kingdom of God. Uh, we, I just think we should know who we are, what our role is, and be confident and... And we don't have everything right, but we have a we have a lot of we have a lot of good things, and it's a good way for me. It's a good way to serve Christ. It's not the only way, but it's a good way. And I just encourage you to find confidence and find rest in who you are, and plug into the church and be all that you can be. And I just want to encourage you, young people. I, I just think I just think you live at an amazing time to be alive. Um, I wish I was your age. I'm jealous of you because you have, and you know, there are people that, there are old people like me that kind of tell you, well, you know, we feel sorry for you because you missed the good old days. And, and you know what? Don't believe those people. Like there never were any good old days. There was never a good time to be a follower of Christ. It's always been challenging. And you live in the good days. You have the opportunities. You have the resources. And Sometimes, you know, wouldn't it be neat, neat if reincarnation really was true? Like, what if you could live one lifetime in North America and then one in Africa and then one in South America? But unfortunately, yeah, we don't. We just get one. And uh, how we choose to live it is important. And I just know that you young people, in the next 50 years, you have the potential to do some amazing things. And I wish I could be around to see it, but I won't be but someday in, in heaven, we can look at what happened and what God did. And I just encourage you to plug into the church and plug into your relationship with Christ and, and be part of bringing God's change to the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the church. Thank you for the opportunity to be part of it. God, we each have a choice as to where we plug in and where we invest our time and energies. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for Keystone uh, Mennonite Fellowship and the standard that it holds and the uh, place that it holds in the broader church. Lord, every, every group has a role to fill. Every congregation has a role to fill. Every, purpose, every person has a purpose for being here. I just pray that you would help us to find our place, to be confident, to thrive, to blossom, to grow, and be all that you want us to be. I pray again that you would bless this church and that you would bless their ministries and their outreach here. I pray that you would help them to have an influence on this community and to be a light in this part of the world and to impact other parts of the world as well through those who go. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, over the next uh, number of decades, bring change to the world through these people, through their families, and the things that you will do through them. In Jesus' name, amen.